Good morning, everybody. Uh, Thanks for joining us for Reach Montreal Online. Uh, Before we jump into this week's teaching, uh, I just want to let you know that this week we are going to be rolling out some reopening uh, plans and kind of in two different phases that'll take us over July and August and then into the fall. So just keep your eyes open for that as we roll out some of those details, as we kind of work, um, you know, so excited to get back together physically. Um, but this week, here we are again, using the technology that we do have uh, to be together to continue our series, Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. Um, and last week, if you remember, last week we tried to kind of hit the story of the Bible in one sermon, right? So we tried to do kind of the epic narrative. What is the Bible actually saying? What's the story that the Bible is telling? And how is it inviting us into that lived experience, into that story? And as we've been going through this series, what we've been looking at is the, the, the Bible as a series of documents, a library of writings that isn't just mainly laws, rules, or commands kind of coldly dropped out of heaven to us as men and women, but actually most of the Bible is made up of story and poetry. And that's what we looked at last week. And that's important because if the Bible is mainly story and poetry, it means that the Bible is mainly an invitation to us into an alternative and true story that doesn't just inform us, but that it forms us. And so today we're going to continue in that. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you that the Bible is a trustworthy record and reliable source for who you are and what you have shown to be true about yourself. And so we just ask that this morning as we come back to this, that you would just guide us, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to what it is that you want us to see from the scriptures and that God, you would use it to change us and to give us life and invite us into a lived experience and a relationship with you. We love you. We invite you into this time. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. So let me start with a question. As we jump in today, first question, when you think of the best-selling books of all time, just think of all time, all human history, from kind of the printing press to now, what are some of the books that come to mind? Well, Chronicles of Narnia have sold 100 million copies. The seven books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia, 100 million copies. The Lord of the Rings, even more, 150 million copies. Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities kind of takes um, a little bit more with 200 million And of course, kind of a modern phenomenon of the last 15 years would be the Harry Potter series with 400 million copies. That's a lot of books. But the Bible comes in at 5 billion copies. The Bible is historically the most read, most studied, most printed, most translated, and most sold and influential piece of literary work of human history. And this is important to remember because right now in our cultural moment, especially right here in the West, in North America, we're feeling some of these tensions of kind of like post-Bible, post-Christian thinking and worldview. But even though Western culture and the secular kind of ethos in particular is working hard to deny and kind of disconnect or deconstruct the Judeo-Christian framework um, that that they still rely on, that the culture is still built on and appeal to, because we still do often appeal to it without wanting to um, understand and admit that that is what we're doing. The influence of the Bible, the impact of the Bible is undeniable. It's undeniable across human history. 
And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this and just not, not just look at it as, well, it's, it's, a, it's a best-selling book. doesn't mean it has to be true or doesn't mean I have to believe it. And that, that's true. But what I want to do this morning is I want to try to go through, well, why trust the Bible? I mean, why trust it? Why trust what it claims? Why look at the Bible and understand its reliability? Why look at it as a unique piece of literature and a library of books that point to something true? Why, why do that at all? And let me ask you a question. Maybe you're in different places here as far as whether you do trust the Bible or you don't. And I want to just kind of push you to think, why do you trust the Bible? Or why do you not trust the Bible? There's lots of different reasons, uh, lots of really good reasons to trust or not trust the Bible. There's lots of good questions that come out of that. There's lots of really honest, genuine questions about that, whether they're spiritual and theological or whether there's philosophical reasons to trust or not trust or moral and personal and emotional issues, or maybe some of the historical and scientific questions around how can we trust the Bible or should we trust the Bible? And I note that today it's fashionable. It's kind of the in thing to um, deconstruct what the Bible says and really just take kind of a moral high ground over the Bible and kind of lob criticism at the Bible as kind of outdated and, and backwards or, or maybe even oppressive to modern life. And that really, we've kind of just, we've just moved on. We've mo- moved on culturally to bigger and better things. Why? Well, because we're, we're progressive. That's why. Right? So you hear things kind of lobbed at the Bible that just kind of like make their way around the Twitter sphere or make their way into conversations. Well, well the, hey, the Bible's full of contradictions and myths. And then that's kind of just put out there as the argument and then everyone moves on and goes, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. But, but you gotta have to kind of sit with those questions and go, okay, yeah, like what? What are some of the contradictions? What are some of the myths that, that you, you wrestle with? Or other questions like, well, hey, the, even the gospel's about Jesus. Even the New Testament documents are later legends about Jesus because obviously they were disappointed that their leader was dead. So then a few hundred years later, some white guys in funny hats sat and had councils and came up with myths about Jesus. And you got to have to push back and go, okay, well, but does history back up that premise? Does history show us that that is true? And ultimately what this leads us to is when we have this posture towards the Bible in our so-called progressive and so-called modern world, we end up with what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, which fuels kind of this ethic and it assumes that if something is old and ancient, it's false. Or if it's old and ancient or it came before us, then it should be abandoned in exchange for modern alternatives or new ideas. And really we end up just kind of as historical revisionists walking around thinking that we're so progressive when really we're just recycling ancient ideas but calling them new. And what happens here too in that thinking in our Western moment is that there's a false dichotomy, a false dichotomy that, that so, there's some things that are ancient and true, (laughs) lots of them. And there's some things that are modern and false, lots of them. And so we have to be careful with our chronological snobbery as we come to the Bible, as we come to study and look at the claims of the Bible. So to get back to the question of like, so do we trust the Bible? Should we trust the Bible? Why do I or do I not trust the Bible? Where do I land on these questions? What we're really asking when we ask that question is, is the Bible a trustworthy, reliable, and accurate record in what it says and in how it says it? 
in what it says, what it claims, and in how it says it. And the other question that's embedded in this is what is the Bible for? Because we can't judge the Bible based on something that it's not for. And that's something throughout this series that we've been working through is defining what the Bible is for. And often in religious circles and in kind of like evangelical circles, we've, we've had again like this, this golden tablet view of the Bible, you know, divine document dropped out of heaven free of human tension or free of human fingerprints to really wrestle with. And in that process, what happens is we ignore interpretation, we ignore hermeneutics, we ignore cultural and historical realities, and we ignore really good, important questions. And so if that's kind of where you've come from or that's the view that you were given or that you've adopted, I would say abandon that view and come at it with a different definition and expectation of the Bible and then study it on its terms and in its terms. So let me remind you of the definition of the Bible we've been using throughout this series. It says this, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that tells one unified story leading us to Jesus. So one thing we've been unpacking is that it's not just one book, but it's many books. It's 66 books, many different human authors, but one divine author that the Bible claims to be the self-revelation of the one God. And it's complex. There's lots of different genres. There's lots of different things to work through. There's historical and cultural things to work through. And so as we come to those questions, it's important to start with, is it even a reliable source of answers for some of the questions that you and I may have? I love C.S. Lewis on this when he talks about how to judge a piece of literature, how to judge anything to be true or trustworthy. And he says this, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship, so anything that's made from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. The first thing is to understand the object that's before you. As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, then you can say nothing to the purpose about them. And that's super important to the definition that we've been using, is what is the Bible actually for? And what does Jesus say about the Bible's purpose? Well, Jesus constantly points at the historicity, the reliability of the Bible to do what? To point humanity to relationship with God, the God that's revealed through the pages of the Bible. And in Jesus, he says that the Bible finds its climax in him, that everything before him in the Old Testament is pointing to him and everything in the New Testament is pointing us back to him. So the Bible is for the self-disclosure of who God is, the human condition and what went wrong and the lengths that God has gone to from the beginning to pursue and rescue and love a broken, sinful humanity. That's what the Bible's for. So the question that we're asking then is does the Bible succeed at that? Is the Bible a reliable, accurate, and trustworthy source to that end? So we're going to do a little bit of historical stuff right now. If history is kind of your jam and you love it, then you're going to love this part. If not, stick with us as we kind of do a little bit of this. But historically speaking, when we just take the Bible, just apart, apart from the claims that the Bible makes, if we just take the Bible in its form and we look at it as a historical work, we look at it as a book made up of other books, it's important to compare it to other ancient sources for its accuracy and its reliability. So here's a couple examples. Plato's Republic, okay, was 
it has its origins in 400 BC. The earliest manuscript copies that we have of that is from the 9th century AD. Okay, so 400 BC is when it was written and where the original ideas come from. But the documents that we have right now, the most extant documents that we have are from the 9th century AD. That's a 1300 year gap between the original and what we have today. And there's only seven copies. Aristotle's Poetics, which again, all of kind of Greek rhetoric and classical studies is based on. We have five copies of that. And they are 1,400 years after the originals. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have, we have the origin of that in 100 BC, but the earliest of that we have is around 9th or 10th century, again, 1,000 years later, and we only have 10 copies. Homer's Iliad, which many of you were forced to read in whatever course on classical studies, but Homer's Iliad is from 800 BC, and the copies that we have the earliest are 400 BC. Now, that's remarkable, but that's still a 400-year gap, and we have many copies of this, actually. We have 643 copies that are all 95% accurate to each other. Remarkable. So the transmission of Homer's Iliad is, is actually amazing. You see that? Now let's compare this quickly to the Old Testament and the New Testament documents. While the Old Testament came into its kind of final form within the Jewish community around 600 BC, and then 300 years later in 300 BC, it was translated into Greek. Why? Well, because that was the lingua franca of the modern world. And we call it the Septuagint. Say Septuagint. You sound great. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now that would have been Jesus's Bible. That would have been the disciples in the first century church's Bible. And what's really amazing about that is that back in, 19, in the 1940s, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it actually took us a thousand years back in the transmission history. And we have a whole scroll of the book of Isaiah as an example in Greek. And there it is 95% accurate and there's minor spelling errors. So we're talking about an amazing transmission history of these documents. And over a thousand years, there was minor differences. And those are the copies that we have. Uh, most of those are just spelling errors. So kind of a letter left out or, you know, the scribe who did that manuscript, for instance, didn't have enough coffee that morning. And he kind of, oh, oops, forgot that, right? That's the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament, the documents that record Jesus's life and ministry and the church's early history, the New Testament documents we have written from, they were circulating already between 50, the year 50, not 1950, but the year 50 to the year 100. And it was 300, in the 300s that we have them kind of canonized, the idea that the Old Testament and New Testament were brought together into one kind of comprehensive whole. The earliest uh, document of, of the New Testament we have is about 125 AD, only 25 to 40 years after most of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's life and ministry. We're talking about remarkably early. Remember with Homer, Homer's Iliad, we had a 400 year gap before anything we have written down. With the New Testament, we have very, very few years. That would be like us today having someone write about World War II and us going, well, oh, they were there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's not too long. Like we're, we're actually listening to them do that. And here's what's remarkable with the New Testament in particular. We have 24,000 copies, 24,000 copies. 
And that might sound scary or might that actually sound, that might actually sound like it's taking away from its historical reliability, but it actually uh, reinforces it because it means that in circulation, in the, in the, in antiquity, in the, the modern world of Greek and Rome, that, that these circulatory documents were being spread all over the place in lots of different languages. We have Greek, we have Latin, we have others. And the Greek manuscripts that we do have, listen to this, the accuracy among all 24,000 copies of the New Testament documents is 99.5% when you compare them. In 350 AD, we have something called the Codex Sinaiticus, and it's virtually the entire New Testament. It's amazing. Now the Gospels. Let's look at the Gospels really quickly for a second before we kind of understand like the why of all of this. Um, The Gospels were written as biographies. If you understand the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are kind of its own genre of literature. They're documenting history, but they're doing it as biography. And they're doing it around the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. Now, uh, the, the Gospels are dated between kind of 60 and 120, depending on who you ask. Some as early as the 30s and 40s. Paul's letters in particular were written between 48 and 65 and then circulated. While many of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry and the aftermath were still alive. So we have many early dates and multiple sources that corroborate the same evidence of what was claimed to have happened, what was claimed to be true about Jesus of Nazareth. And this doesn't even um, bring into consideration the extra biblical sources, the ones that aren't in the Bible, but actually are written by non-Christian Jewish scholars or um, Roman historians that talk about early Christianity. And that's fascinating too. We don't have time to get into that now. But here's what we have to understand. That this is a remarkably careful, remarkably clear, reliable testimony of what happened. Now, what you and I believe about what happened, now that's a different issue altogether, isn't it? But here's what's important. If you're struggling and you have questions about this or you're coming at it from a skeptical lens or agnostic lens, you have to question your doubts. You have to question why you don't believe or trust in the claims of the Bible. You have to start there. Um, To hear all the reasons why someone else does doesn't necessarily help you get at why you don't. And certain critical scholars like Bart Ehrman would be one of the most famous, one of the most well-known has written several books who have hit New York Times kind of top seller lists, um, especially his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Uh, that, that book's sold like hotcakes. And what Bart Ehrman argues there is he claims that there's 400,000 heirs in the Bible. And that's, a, that's a lot of heirs, right? That, that's a ton. And it sounds like, oh no, that's problematic. But it sounds problematic until you actually look at the kind of so-called heirs that Bart Ehrman inflates in that argument. There's actually only, when you look, when you look at the 400,000 heirs, remember the 24,000 copies. So if there's one spelling error in one of those copies and that was repeated over 10,000, then that's going to count for several thousand of, of so-called heirs. So Bart Ehrman kind of compounds that to say, hey, we can't trust these documents. But it's not historically genuine to do that. It's a little bit intellectually irresponsible to do that, especially when we compare it to other sources of antiquity like we just did. Plato, Aristotle, Homer, whatever it is. We still have a remarkable record. And actually, when you look at all of the manuscripts in the New Testament, there are only two errors that we we run into and we go, oh, okay, we got to deal with that. And they're in Matthew 16 and they're in John 7. 
And what's the air? Well, some manuscripts include a section that others don't. So we have two different corresponding manuscript traditions that we see the scribal community uh, recording and copying. Now, the the point, though, behind those two heirs, so-called heirs, is that there is nothing theologically conflicting about those things. Nothing at all. Theologically meaning there's nothing that's said about God that's like, oh no, big dirty secret. We should have buried Matthew 16 and John 7 before they found this out. There's nothing theological about that. Uh, Pastor Greg Gilbert in his book, Can We Trust the Bible? He, He sums up all of this nerdy historical stuff. And he says, it turns out that not a single doctrine of Orthodox Christianity depends solely on a questioned portion of the biblical text. So whereas Bart Ehrman and other scholars want to inflate this number and tell us how many heirs there are, the question that we must ask is what do those heirs actually do to take away from the clear teachings of the Bible? The answer, nothing. So when we're consistent in our criteria to look at the Bible on the shelf among other sources of antiquity, amongst history, the manuscripts and scrolls of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the gospel biographies and the letters of the New Testament taken together are, just just historically, the most accurately preserved, reliable, and verifiable documents of human history. That's remarkable. And that's, just not, that's not a Christian perspective. That's just a historian's perspective. We know what they wrote. We know what they believed. It doesn't mean that you have to believe what is claimed, but it does mean that the Bible's reliability isn't a legitimate reason for unbelief. And that's an important point to make. That's an important place to start. And this isn't, because we don't have time, this isn't even considering some of the archaeology around key Bible places and events and figures. Like Abraham, King David, Daniel, the Hittites, King Hezekiah's water tunnel that's mentioned in like two verses, Pontius Pilate and Jesus. We have all of these other sources of information in history that continue to come and corroborate what is claimed in the Bible. I like this kind of stuff, and I get excited about this. Let me show you with you two examples from the New Testament really quick. Uh, Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, he was a medical doctor and a historian. He writes those. He uses two Greek words, okay, in Luke that are found nowhere else in classical Greek, okay? Polytarch and proconsul. Those are the two words. Sound fun, right? He uses those two words. Now, historians for a long time have assumed that Luke made a mistake. It's a spelling error. We can't trust what Luke says until archaeologists found a first century archway that used the word, you guessed it, polytarch. And uh, a little bit later, they found an inscription dated to 51 AD naming the actual proconsul by name, Galileo, that Luke does in his gospel. Amazing. Like, I mean, it's just incredible. And at a historical kind of archaeological geeky level, that's just fantastic stuff. Like you see that, you're just like, wow, that, that's pretty mind-blowing. And also the Bible, we got to be honest about this because it has gone through the most rigorous historical criticism than any other historical um, text of, of history. And that's what's amazing. There's been more textual criticism and historical criticism done to the Bible and it has come out historically, impressively, culturally accurate and reliable. No wonder it's the most read, most sold, most studied book ever. No wonder it's the most influential work of human history 
ever, right? It belongs among the greatest intellectual achievements of the human race, and it still speaks and influences today. It's remarkable. Even from a non-faith perspective, it is just an incredible thing, and that's why we still study it. That's why we as a culture still study it. That's why still people who are not even of people of faith study it from the historical and archaeological perspective. So what does this mean for you and me? Let's get past the historical stuff for a second and kind of the Bible geekdom, okay? Here's what this means. Sometimes when we talk about the Bible, we talk about it with the word canon, the idea of the canon. Now, canon, this this would be the Christian canon made up of now the Old Testament and the New. That's the Greek word that means kind of measuring stick or reed, originally what it comes from. The idea that the canon is something, it's our measure, it's our rule, ruler of faith, Okay? We can't get into all the history of this, but what is important is that the canon of scripture was not decided by a bunch of guys with funny hats, sitting in rooms, having councils, going, that book's in, that book's out, that book's in, that book's out. I know that the Da Vinci Code and the History Channel continuously makes this argument, but ultimately it shows that it's inaccurate historically, and it's actually intellectually dishonest to make that claim because that's not how the canon was formed at all. That's not how these documents were copied and brought into a place of it being authoritative for the community of faith. That's not how it happened. In fact, it was the other way around. That the documents that we have in our hand, in our Bible today, in this book, the Bible, were actually a a functional canon for the community of faith long before it became a formal canon. Okay, meaning that these documents were authoritative in the life of the community of faith long before they were like, oh, I guess we better bring these things together. And ultimately, what led the Jewish community, the early church, to do this and bring these documents together is that they kept getting killed. (laughs) They kept getting killed. They kept getting raped and pillaged and their documents were getting burned. So then we have all these copies. They're like, let's make more copies because every time we get persecuted and get our heads chopped off and get fed to lions, we're going to lose this. So we better get this baby written down. And so they start to circulate it and write it down. So every time in the Old Testament, exile happens. Every time in the New Testament, we see a persecution in the church. There's this push to say, we better write this stuff down. So I know the kind of power play of like the people in authority, the religious people sitting with their funny hats, deciding what's in and out is kind of the the myth that sits, the urban legend that sits over the Bible, but it's just not historically true. The Bible and the Bible's claims were a story lived out by a people long before it was a story written down for people. Long before. So contrary to kind of the modern secular claims the transmission of the manuscripts were nothing like just kind of a game of broken telephone. It was a people giving testament and testimony to the fact that God was at work and he still is. And I know that in our post-literate kind of digital culture, we don't understand the level of care and the level of significance that went into preserving and transmitting the Old and New Testament. These were literary geniuses. We're talking about professional scribes that did this for a living. People who knew multiple languages that took great care and spent their entire lives ending up nameless. Most we would never know and never and don't know. Writing this down and copying this. Why? Because the story needs to be told to the world. That's why. And it's always a weird argument to say it's the people in power that kind of like conspired behind closed doors. If you've read the Bible, that's not even who is in the Bible. Like, like this is not even a story that you would tell. 
Like, this is not a myth that you would make up. Just like, yeah, they keep killing us. That's a cool story. Let's tell everybody. It doesn't make any sense. The first uh, eyewitnesses to the tomb were, were women. And, and that's written down, that they were the first ones to witness that, hey, Jesus' body is gone. They weren't even allowed to testify in court in the first century. So talk about picking an incredible, uncredible witness for this story. This is actually so counterintuitive. And it's actually a story that is so backwards and works against itself in all the weird ways that we don't expect, yet God uses it to speak. And that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. So here's what I want to do. I want to jump from the New Testament. I want to jump all the way and kind of flash back to the 1530s with a man named William Tyndale. Now we're going to get into kind of like, hey, here's what we have. Is it trustworthy and why do we have it? William Tyndale was an Englishman who's known as the father of the English Bible. He, his work and his, his efforts prompted the Reformation in England. And what Tyndale was driven by, I mean, he was a linguist who was brilliant. He knew seven languages. He was very well, um, well educated in Greek and Hebrew. But what happened is that during Tyndale's time, he saw a lot of corruption and a lot of abuse of power inside and outside the church, both. And his solution was, okay, to fight against the abuse of power specifically in the church and specifically with the Roman Catholic Church, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the scriptures out of the hands of the people in power and I'm going to get the scriptures into the hands of the people. I'm going to get it out of the, the, the hands of the people in power that pontificate to the people what it actually means and actually says, in Latin, by the way, which wasn't even spoken anymore, And instead, I'm going to get it into English to get it into the hands of the people because they have a right to understand this for themselves. And so what he did is he worked his entire life and labored to get the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament into English. Now, he he completed the New Testament and he didn't complete the Old Testament before he was arrested for heresy and executed. He was beaten and strangled to death by the powers that be and then lit on fire. The two convictions, though, that William Tyndale was driven by, were driven by, is very important. Number one, he believed that the Bible should function as the driving authority for the church, not the Pope, not priests, not preachers, not leaders, or not tradition, but the Bible. The Bible should be the authority that all the people of God should be able to come and hear the word and words of God. And two, that everyone should have equal access to the Bible in their own language, in their mother language tongue. Now you and I assume those things, but these were revolutionary ideas that ultimately led to Tyndale being executed for. Uh, There's one really famous quote from William Tyndale, one of his critics, one of the religious bishops of the time who wanted to kind of squash this movement because, I mean, he might lose his job. He said, if God spare my life, I will see to it that the boy who drives the plowshare, the farmer, knows more of the scripture than you, sir. That was the kind of person that Tyndale was. Now, Tyndale didn't work alone. Tyndale was building on the work of uh, coming kind of on the heels of John Wycliffe's work in England, who was about 150 years before that. And he was the uh, earliest effort to translate the Bible into English. And it, it, it was left incomplete and it resulted in his death too. And actually, John Wycliffe's body later, after Tyndale, was dug up just so that they could light it on fire. So you're dealing with really special, awesome people. This is also coming off the heels of Gutenberg's printing press in in the 1450s. Do you know what the first book ever printed in its final form was with the Gutenberg press? You guessed it, the Bible. The Bible in Latin. 
And that was also around the same time that the chapters and verses were added. So the 1400s and 1500s chapters in our Bible and the 31,171 verses were added to the Bible for what? So that we consult it and actually study it better. All of this came out of the work of, uh, of Tyndale, of Martin Luther, of John Wycliffe, of all of these reformers who stood up and says, no, 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 no. The power that we see being abused to tell us what the scriptures say is wrong. We want to hear what God says, not what you say about what God says. So we need to get this word into the hands of the people. And this is where a lot of the doctrines of the Reformation come out of. Martin Luther, especially in in Germany. Justification by faith alone. Not by indulgences, not by uh, you know having having the priest or the pope give me the blessing or tell me how I need what I need to do or what I need to pray in order to get some kind of a forgiveness or mercy or grace from God or Mary or whatever it is that they know it's justification by faith alone in through Scripture alone by grace alone for the glory of God alone those are the things that came out of the Reformation and so Tyndale William Tyndale successfully smuggles 18,000 Bibles in English into England and then just distributes them to everyone who's literate. And so there's this crazy movement throughout the time of Tyndale where it's being read by families and friends who are literate in secret, like in private meetings. And the king, King Henry, and all of the king's men, it sounds like the beginning of a cute poem, but they weren't cute at all, that the king and the king's soldiers were buying every copy they could of the English Bible to burn them, just to get rid of them. And they're arresting and executing people for having them. This is England, okay? This is crazy. There's one point where the bishop in England on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London burned 6,000 copies of the Bible. A bishop in the church burned 6,000 copies of the Bible. Nuts. Now, Here's the point. In 1536, Tyndale, after being brutally imprisoned for almost two years, he was executed for heresy. He was strangled to death and then burned. And his last words from the eyewitnesses who were there, the bystanders, were, Lord of heaven, open the king of England's eyes. And three years later, after his execution, God did exactly that where King Henry VIII called for an authorized English Bible to be printed and distributed and read in every church in England. So it wasn't, it wasn't getting it into the hands of the people, but it was getting it into every church in England. And English Bibles were printed and actually chained to the pulpits so that people could actually see that this is what the, the, the pastors and leaders are reading from and teaching from. And King Henry didn't do that because he was a great guy, just so you know. King Henry did that because it was actually out of spite towards the Pope because the Roman Catholic Pope didn't let King Henry give him permission to divorce his wife so that he could go and marry his mistress. So King Henry did it as a, okay, the Pope doesn't like the Bible getting into the hands of the people, so I'm going to do that. So he did, and he distributed all these Bibles, and then he divorced his wife anyway, married his mistress, and then he later executed two of his previous wives. This dude was not a good dude, but what, he, what happened there was that God actually used it to bring about an entire subversion of the power that was in the church through an ungodly pagan man. God can do whatever he wants, and he does. And then just... 30 years later in Geneva, in Switzerland, 1560, we see 90% of Tyndale's English Bible used to bring about the Genevan Bible, which you can actually still see. It's beautiful, beautiful work. 
And it's crazy because that Bible, that actual Bible was Shakespeare's Bible. It was John Bunyan's Bible. It was John Knox's Bible. Bible. It was Oliver Cromwell's Bible. We're talking about some big wigs here. And then as many of us know, in 1611, King James commissions a wide-scale printing of English Bibles not only to be distributed into churches, but to get them into the hands of every literate English man and woman. Amazing work. And here we are with this in our hands today. And what's crazy about something like this, and we look at history this way, is that these efforts that we see made by someone like Tyndale who shed his blood and lost his life to get this word into our hands, in our language, this work still continues in dozens of countries across the world who do not have access to the Bible in their mother tongue. And listen, you and I don't feel this. We don't feel the severity of this. We don't feel the weight of this. Why? Well, because we can download the Bible app on our phone or we can walk into chapters and buy one. But the Bible is still illegal and forbidden in many countries today. You can be arrested, and there are brothers and sisters being arrested, tortured, and executed for having a Bible. North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Yemen, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, many more. Like This is a real thing that we see today. Many people are losing their lives. Men, women, and children have lost their lives and are still losing their lives to get this word out. So church, hear me, the Bible is blood-bought and it's a blood-bought book about our blood-stained Savior. And that's what is remarkable about it. All the historical stuff is remarkable, but even more remarkable is the story that it tells, the good news that it invites us into. And the only reason that you and I have access to the Bible is because of the conviction and the perseverance and the dedication of men and women before us who fought with their lives, to preserve and proclaim what God has always been saying. It's amazing. It's an amazing gift. And it's an amazing invitation into relationship with the God that's revealed in the pages of the Bible. I want to show you a short video to give you an example of exactly this. This video is done by the Bible Society. And this is just the recent work that's been happening in West Papua New Guinea. Okay, watch this. Then we'll come back and apply a couple things and close. the looks on their faces, the level of excitement about actually having the word of God in their words, in their language. If we could, as a church in the West, recapture that level of significance and importance and beauty of the word of God, it would do nothing less than change the world. In our context, though, and understand, the biggest threat to the Bible today in our context here isn't external. It isn't persecution, it isn't imprisonment, it isn't death, and it isn't a lack of access to it. The biggest threat today in our context is internal. What we don't know cannot change us. What we don't study won't shape us. And the vast majority of Christians in the West don't read or study their Bible. We don't look at it as authoritative. We look at it as helpful. And it is far more than just helpful. Like we saw in that video, it is the very words of God that give life. And we have the words of life in our laps. 
and on our phones and on our tablets. We need it though to go from there and sitting on our bedside table for it to be in our hearts and in our minds. That's the only way that this revolutionary countercultural true story about the life-giving God will change us and will change our world. So beyond the historical reliability of the Bible, and that's important, we have to understand that scripture is trustworthy because the God behind scripture is trustworthy. The Bible is an invitation into relationship and trust with this God. To, it's an invitation to abandon a self-defined life. It's to fo- abandon following self and, fo- and following definitions of our cultural moment and instead following after the God who always was and always will be the giver of life. Andrew Wilson in his book summarizes this well when he says this, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts if, as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. I think he's right. That for you and I, as followers of Jesus especially, we trust the Bible because of the testimony and the witness that it provides about the self-disclosure of God. Amen. But ultimately, this is a relationship with the God of the Bible. And that happens in Jesus Christ. And I love how the Apostle John finishes his gospel. In John 20, verse 30 through 31, he, he again summarizes this well, and this is what we'll close with. And he writes about his own gospel. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. It's not exhaustive. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible as a whole, Old Testament and new with its unique history and transmission are trustworthy, reliable, and accurate because it's an invitation into relationship to know and trust Jesus, the author of life. And that's what Jesus has accomplished for you and me. So I want to encourage us not only to just kind of have our heart like just like enlarged with a passion for scripture, but I also want to encourage us to continue to study well and to know what it has taken to get this into our hands and to approach it, not just kind of casually, but to approach it reverentially, to come to it because we're coming and opening this to worship the God that leaps off the pages and transforms hearts and minds. Let me pray for us. Father, we're just so thankful that watching a video like that and seeing the level of excitement about your word, about you and what you say, Lord, we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers to every question. No one does, but Lord, we come and we say with a posture that we trust you, a posture of humility to say, Lord, we wanna know more of you. We wanna know more about you, but we also wanna be transformed by you. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray for all of us, Lord, even if we're at a place where we're not quite there, we're not trusting the words of scripture that you would transform hearts and minds and you would continue to lead and give direction to people who are exploring and seeking after you so that they too, like John 20 says, would have life in your name. We love you and we thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.